smiling faces that I, I saw and heard sounds like or looks like uh, this series might relate to you a little bit as it does for me. Again, uh, good morning and, and welcome to uh, the first week of the series that we're calling Crazy Busy. Um, if you are a guest with us, I wanted to point out uh, the uh, colored insert in your service folder. That would be a great time to bring it out now. Uh, many of you are starting your groups this week. It's, it's always good to come prepared to group by writing some notes of things that struck you. Filling in the blanks is a, is a part of that, I guess. And um, this is a series that we really picked specifically to... Start on this specific weekend at the end of this particular week of the year. And here's why. More than any other place that, that I've lived or been, and now I've been in Minnesota for well over a decade, um, there's something about Minnesota where the Labor Day weekend is a huge thing. And it, I think it might have something to do with the fact that the state fair is the same weekend, bigger than any other state that I've, I've been at, where Labor Day sort of marks the unofficial end to summer and to fun, <laughs> right? And then Tuesday after Labor Day, the Tuesday we just had, is kind of the starting blocks to a long and tiring and cold marathon sprint to the other Monday holiday in May called Memorial Day, where then Minnesotans begin to have fun again, so to speak, because that's when summer unofficially starts, all right? And so it just gets busy. Anyone feeling that way right now? Let me tell you a little bit about my house. Uh, the last two years, we've had all four kids in school. This year, our oldest for the first year is in high school, which has sent a whole new dynamic to our family, especially because he goes to St. Croix, which is about 30 minutes away. And so the first week of all four kids in school, I didn't realize this, but it would take Carrie and I over an hour to figure out the driving, chauffeuring schedule for all the kids and the other events, all the events, and taking my schedule, cross-checking it with Carrie's schedule, doubles cross-checking it with the kids' schedule, and then emailing and texting about carpools and phone. I mean, it literally took an hour, and I was exhausted, and it was like the first day, and school hadn't even started yet. It was the, first, the day before the first day. I'm getting that all figured out, and by the end of it, it's like this big puzzle that if, if we got every piece just in place right and the car didn't break down and there was no other emergency and no one got sick, that I think we'll get through the week okay. Can any of you, again, relate to any of that, depending on what season of life you are in or were in? We get busy. In fact, um, I was reading part of a book by Tim Chester. It's called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness. <laughs> and uh, he suggests 12 questions to consider. And the more that relate to you, he says, tells you a little bit about how and where your busyness level is. I'm not going to read all 12, but here's some to think about. He, write, he lists this question. Do you regularly answer work emails and phone messages while you're at home, even on your day off? Like, that's bad? That's wrong? You know, that's what most of us are thinking, right? Number two, has anyone ever said to you, I don't want to bother you because I know you're busy? <laughs> I, 
I hate to confess that people say that to me, and it's convicting. Um, what sort of aura, persona do I give off, or how have I scheduled my life uh, to give people that impression? Number three, does your family complain about not getting time with you? Number four, do you regularly exceed the speed limit because you're late or in a hurry? <laughs> it's a sign. Five, on kind of the flip side, uh, do you pray with your spouse or children regularly? Or do you find yourself to be too busy? Number six, if tomorrow night unexpectedly freed up, how would you use it? Would you use it to get a little bit of work done? You know, just a little bit of work, which is like two, three hours of work usually. Number seven, um, do you eat together as a family at least once a day? Now, I'm guessing for some of you, every single one of those questions was convicting. For others of you, maybe it was one, maybe it was two, but, but I think all of us, at least one of them applied and got us thinking a little bit. And one of the things that I know about 2015 is that it is harder than ever not to be busy, and the reason is technology. Technology is helpful to get things done quickly, but it also can be a big old weight, an anchor, if we don't learn that our phones have an off button and we don't ever turn it off and use that button, if we're continually connected to work and responsibility and extended family problems and all those sorts of things. Now, another thing I want to point out as we kind of set the stage for this series is that some of us actually uh, like being busy. Some of us actually prefer to be busy. And, and honest truth is this, that the Bible speaks against laziness. That God speaks against uh, a person who doesn't fulfill the responsibilities that God has given them and use their gifts to the fullest. Uh, the book of Proverbs has uh, this word uh, sluggard that comes up about 10, 12 times. And every time it's sluggard is used, it's not something that is a, a good phrase or a good adjective to describe someone. So God doesn't like laziness. And truthfully, there's going to be seasons of life where you're just going to be busy. The first week of school, it's probably going to be a busy week for the family. When you start a new job, it's probably going to be busy. You're coming to the end of a really big project at work. It's going to be busy, and you can't really do anything about it. Um, you move. It's going to be busy. The examples can continue or go on and on, okay? But here's what we want to talk about today and for the rest of this series, is that there is, well, basically two types of busy. And I want to de define them. So what we'll call busy is basically a person who is fulfilling the responsibilities that God has given them to the best of their ability, and it just takes time. And then there's this other category that's kind of going to take the theme of our series. I'm affectionately or unaffectionately calling it crazy busy. And, and crazy busy is where you go past your responsibilities, and in that space where you have some choice about your schedule, you amp it up so much that you are to your limits of what is humanly possible, all right? And, and how do you know 
if you're crazy busy? How do you know if you're venturing into that and over that line? Well, here's our first fill-in that I think can be helpful. Crazy busy happens when your pace of life has a harmful effect on your life. Crazy busy, I'll say it again, happens when the pace of your life has a harmful effect on your life or on the lives of the people around you. And in fact, I have three different areas to to consider when it comes to whether you've allowed your schedule to have a harmful effect on you. The first is analyzing your mood and the mood of your family. If, If the joy that we have in the Lord seems to be rarely in your home, and that because of our schedules and our pace of life, we are so tightly wound that if one little thing goes wrong, you know, it's like a disaster and, and people have a hard time communicating well and just there's this, this cloud of crabbiness, okay? You probably have ventured from busy into ba- to crazy busy. Another one would be relationships. Analyze and think about your relationships. Do you have the emotional capacity to invest in the people you should be investing with and in. And I'm not just talking about spending time with them as you watch them play their baseball game or something. I'm talking about real time that you have carved out, that you're thinking about, that you're investing in them in in the best possible ways. Or are we too crazy busy? Third one is priorities. Analyze your priorities to let you know whether you've allowed yourself to be crazy busy. So if, if the pastor handed out a piece of paper and to write down on the, for you to write down on the paper your number one most important priority, especially if the pastor handed it out, hint, hint, what would you probably write? Jesus, right? Or something to that effect. And you are absolutely right. You should recognize and understand that Jesus is our top priority in life. And along with that comes the disciplines that go along with faith. Um, So what also should be priorities? Things like regular worship, uh, daily prayer, daily devotions on your own or with your family, Um, carving out time to invest in other Christians, uh, like in a growth group here at Bethlehem, Um, serving, using your gifts to to serve the the ministry of the gospel that God has given to us to do. When those things that you know in your heart should be priorities, when those things are crammed into the nooks and crannies of your schedules, instead of put on there first, we've probably ventured into crazy busy and are in danger of running ourselves to the limit. The limit of what we can, is healthy. Did you know that um, one of the Ten Commandments that God gave was remember the Sabbath day? You know what that meant for the, the Old Testament children? It meant thou shalt rest one day a week. God has created us to only be able to keep a certain pace and to stay healthy or to keep our families, especially spiritually healthy, right? And it, much like a car, if you run it for more than, you know, a few seconds at 8,000 RPMs, it's going to crash and burn, right? And if we, 
for more than a season of life where there seems to be some sort of thing that's an anomaly, but if we let our lives over the long haul be at 8,000 RPMs, well, I don't know of any family that's been able to stay healthy that way. Now, here's the other thing I know. You knew that already. It's not rocket science. I didn't tell you anything you didn't know already. So what do we, what do, we do about it? Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to have some practical encouragement from Scripture on that. But for today, what I want you to get to think about is your need for margin in your life. What's margin? I have a, a definition written on your uh, insert, and I got it from a book entitled Crazy Busy that we read for a, a pastor's support group that I'm a part of. And, and the, the definition of margin is the space between your load, that is like the responsibilities that there is no doubt you need to fulfill. God has given them to you. The space between that, your responsibilities, your load, and what is your limit. And your limit is where you crash and burn, okay? And you're unhealthy and the family's unhealthy. And in between those two points is margin. Our, our next fill-in. A lack of margin can be a spiritual issue. A lack of margin can be a spiritual issue. I want to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But before I do that, I want to talk about why margin, having margin can help. And to do that, I need a volunteer. And I think I'm going to uh, call on my good friend, Tim Ziemer, since I've known you a while. So come on up, Mr. Ziemer. It's your lucky day. Now, don't roll your eyes at me. Come on. <laughs> so I know, I know we go way back, and you know some things about me, um, things I'd rather you not know, too. Yeah, give you the, yeah, I'm preaching the sermon, all right. Um, but one of the things you may not know is that I played baseball, you know, for quite a while as a kid and into, uh, into school. And uh, I played outfield and catcher, and I also had another job. I was the um, batting practice pitcher. So I couldn't throw the ball fast enough to be a real pitcher, but I was accurate enough so the coach had me throw batting practice. So with that little background, I just want you to know that I'm a very um, accurate thrower. Hey, can I have you stand against that wall for a second, please? And uh, you can look this way. And could you put that uh, apple on your head and just kind of hold it up there with uh, one finger? There you go. All right. So what I'm going to do, because I'm really accurate, is I'm going to throw... <laughs> throw this ball, and I'm going to knock the apple right off your head. In between that little space between your finger and the top of your, oh, so, yeah, you might want to take your hand off, you know, no, it's good, it's good. Um, so if you thought that I were serious about this, how might you be feeling um, with the idea that someone might be throwing a baseball at the top of your head? There he comes. He's lying. He's lying. All right. That's right. Exactly. So um, could you take the apple off your head and put it on the stand that just magically appeared next to you there? All right. And then stand back there. Now, if I were to throw the ball now and knock the apple, try to knock the apple down, how are you feeling now? Better or worse? Better. And why is that? <laughs> your, head's, yeah, your head's far away from it. And, and um, 
Well, let's give Tim a round of applause. Thank you for helping me out. <clears throat> Do you know what the space between Tim's head and the apple is called? Margin. Yeah, <laughs> it's called margin. And when you have margin, you're more comfortable. So think about sometimes things we do. We have to be somewhere at 10. And we wait until the last second to leave so that we're five minutes away, let's say, and we have to be there in five minutes. And so what happens to your mood? You get nervous and tense, you're white-knuckling it, and you're praying that every light is red, and you're mad at God if they're not. Lord, why didn't you give me a green light? And the fault is not God's. The fault is we should have left five minutes earlier or ten, right? Because margin helps. Margin is good. Margin allows us to be healthier. Or how about in your schedules? So, we pack them so tight. Again, I'm, think, I'm thinking of things past responsibility. In that space, from the responsibility to the limit, we pack them so tight that if anything out of the ordinary happens in our week, you cannot survive it, <laughs> at least for the week. If someone gets sick, whatever it is, because we didn't create margin. We don't create margin in our relationships. We don't set apart time that's meant to just invest in our kids or invest in our spouse, or very rarely sometimes do we do that. And so again, why don't we do that? Why don't we create margin? Well, let me give you the backstory to Crazy Busy, and it's the fill-in that's already up on the screen. The backstory is this, that the lack of margin is a spiritual issue. There's something going on in here that sort of compels us to do more than we should. You know what that thing is? For 95% of us, because I'm guessing there might be some exceptions, for 95% of us, it's fear. Now, if that surprises you, let me tell you what I mean, or let me explain by giving you some examples. It's the fear of missing out. And so you're a single person, let's say, and you schedule your day with all of these things because you don't want to miss out on anything, and in the long run, you're not healthy spiritually or emotionally. It's the fear of our kids missing out. So they have to be on 10 teams because if they're not on 10 teams, everyone says they won't play high school, whatever. And so we're fearful of something in the future that's affecting the decisions we're making in the present. Um, it's fear of not mattering at work. That if I don't put in the 70-hour work week that everyone else is putting in, or many others are putting in, or whatever hours it is, that I'm not going to be as high, you know, in the, on the totem pole, on the org chart. Um, it's, it's fear of uh, not, uh, not mattering when it, when it comes to um, the things around us. 
Uh, it's a fear of not, of failing, of not adding up. You look around and you see uh, people that have things that you wish you had, uh, the car that they're driving, the house that they live in, the, 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 the st- lifestyle that they have, the vacations they get to go on, you know, so on and so forth. And so we, we drive ourselves crazy in the presence because we fear not feeling significant. You see, see what I'm saying? There's probably a, a million other examples of this. But we make decisions in the present over fear. If we don't make them, it's going to mean something in the future that we'd wish were different. And, and so our next fill-in is really true. We let the fear influence our pace of life. We let fear influence our pace of life. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, that fear that we let drive us, it's nothing else but sin. We let sin drive us and to think things that, that make us make decisions that are not the best, that are not in line with the priorities that, that we should have. And so with all that said, and with that as a backdrop, what do we do with that fear? That leads us to God's word today. And what we're going to look at is a very famous account in the Old Testament. Um, almost every child knows this account. It's the account of David and Goliath. And in this account, what we're going to see is what happens when people are ruled by fear, and then what can happen when we replace that fear with something else. So a little bit of background. It's about a thousand years uh, before Jesus was born. And the Israelites, that's God's people, the Jews, they are in a battle against the Philistines who want to basically conquer uh, Israel. And they've been in this battle for about 20 years, and it's kind of come to a head. And there's the Philistines on one side of a valley and the Israelites high on the other side of the valley. And it is really clear that something's going to happen as these two armies are lined up. And we read from 1 Samuel um, chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soka and Azekah. Saul, that's the the king of Israel at the time, and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. And guess what was in that valley? At least at the time of our text, verse 4. It was a champion, a strong man named Goliath who was from Gath. He came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Now, this sounds almost fairy tale-ish, right? I'm telling you, this is not a fairy tale. We don't see any nine-foot-tall people anymore, but God allowed this man to grow head and shoulders and then another head and shoulders above anyone else who lived at the time. Goliath, over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. So his armor alone, just to give you an idea of his size and strength, weighed 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. <clears throat> so, you know, like strap a 13-year-old on your back and walk around all day. I mean, that's how much 
his armor weighed. Verse 6, on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a, a weaver's rod. That just means it was big. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That is 20-pound tip to his spear. So, like, think about taking two average-sized bowling balls and sticking them on a stick and trying to, you know, wave that around. And this is a big dude with big muscles, intimidating, and as we'll see, angry. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Verse 8. Goliath stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one man and have him come down to me. Next verse. If he's able to fight and to kill me, we, the Philistines, will become your subjects. But if I, Goliath, overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, Goliath said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. And in essence, what he is saying here is, I defy your God. I am calling you out, and I am calling your God out. Give me now a man, and let us fight each other. And so the plan, just to recap, is that Goliath, instead of having everybody fight and thousands or hundreds die in a battle, there's just going to be, you know, they're going to arm wrestle for it. But to the death. Mano y mano, all right? Goliath against whoever the Israelites, you know, push out there, okay? <laughs> what happened? How did the Israelites respond? Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And in the meaning of those two Hebrew words, dismayed and terrified, there's this idea of hopelessness, of running around without purpose, of being overcome by fear. Okay? And when you keep reading in those verses, what you find out is that not one single person was willing to go fight Goliath. Not even the king, Saul, who the Bible says was a head taller than all the other Israelites, not quite nine feet, but probably, you know, somewhere in the six-foot range there, six and a half maybe, something like that. No one was willing to go out and to fight. That's understandable. <laughs> nine-foot-whatever giant who's willing to rip your head off, right? I get it. Who of us would be just all keyed to go out and to fight this guy? But there's more to it than that. When you read through the verses of that chapter, you see that as they're contemplating who should go, not one person mentions God. Not one person thinks, well, this seems pretty difficult, <laughs> but uh, we've seen some pretty amazing things from God. <laughs> How do you think that plays into it? Not one person recalled the grace, love, and strength of God in the midst of this situation and circumstance. Until David showed up. Late teens, early 20s, young enough where he wasn't in the army. He was busy tending 
his father's flocks. He was a shepherd boy. The only reason he's near the battle lines is because his dad, Jesse, had sent him to bring some food to David's brothers who were in the army. Don't miss this. While no one else was discussing God, David discussed no one else but God. When David got there, while no one else was focused on God, as we see from his words and his actions, David focused on no one else but God. And so as the Philistine giant is throwing his insults towards Israel, look at what little shepherd boy David says, verse 13, uh, 26. Who is this guy, essentially? Who is this non-believer that he should defy the armies of the living? Who is he? Are you guys okay with this, Israelite armies? I mean, is no one upset about this? Do you think he's stronger than our God? <laughs> and so David volunteers. What I think is even more amazing than that is that King Saul let him. Yeah, send out the shepherd boy. But it happens. And as David stands before Goliath, with only a sling and a few stones, the, the Bible records that Goliath, in essence, looks at him and says, Really? I am Goliath, and you send me this little boy, like throwing sticks at a dog? I mean, come on. What's go Really? And while Goliath is all confident in himself, and while the Israelites have totally forgotten God in their fear. David, on the other hand, has these words to share with Goliath. He said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, and big ones, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He is the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, it's the Lord who will hand you over to me, and I, with the Lord's help will strike you down and cut off your head. Verse 46 continuing. Today I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know, not that I'm great, but that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And as most of you know, David swung that sling with a stone around his head, let it go, and the stone, <laughs> guided no doubt by God, struck that invincible giant from Gath in between the eyes, and he fell over and died. What's the point? Can I tell you what we shouldn't get from this account? The point is not that when we follow the Lord, that every difficulty goes away and every worldly challenge dies. That just is not his promise to us. Sometimes the Goliath dies, 
of our lives, and sometimes God allows Goliath to remain and gives us something in his eyes, God's eyes, that is, that is even better. So it's not that every Goliath is going to die when you trust God. The point is this, that when you have fear about something in the future, you can handle it in one of two ways. You can handle it like the Israelites did, forget about God, neither get worried or try to accomplish whatever it is all on our own. And fill up our schedules to try to attain whatever it is you're looking for. Put your kids and everything in order for them to have the opportunities, even if family priorities and godly priorities are out of whack, and to make decisions in the future because you fear something, or in the present because you fear something in the future. Or, or, in those moments when the giant of time and culture stands before us, we can trust. My encouragement for people like myself who sometimes allow myself to get to the limits of what I'm capable of is to do our fourth fill-in, is to replace your fear with trust. To replace your fear with trust. So they say that my child will not play varsity sports unless we spend about 15 years driving our families crazy. And again, we've done traveling teams and things too. Every family is different, okay? But I just want you to hold on for a moment and just to think about this. Do we have to do that? You know, if God wants your son or daughter to play varsity sports, they'll play it no matter what. And But sometimes I see families being controlled by fear instead of by trust. And example after example, do you know something about your God? <laughs> he can take a little shepherd boy. He can, the shepherd boy, because of God, can slay a nine and a half foot giant from Gath. Do you know something about your God? He took little puny people like you and I, covered with a load of sin. And he sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus slayed the giant of my sin. God is love. God is powerful. God forgives our messed up schedules at times, if they get messed up. And God also strengthens us to make today a new day and gives us the wisdom to make good decisions in that gap between the load and the limit, to create margin so that we can be healthy, both relationally, physically, and also spiritually. So as we close today, I just have one little thing um, for you to do because we're going to keep going next week. If you can't be with us next week, all of our sermons are, are online, so you can follow along online. Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply ask yourself this question. Where in your life do you need margin? What activities, what things are not essential, and if you've allowed them to, I guess, 
get your health, spiritually, physically, or emotionally, out of whack? Where do you need margin? And then start to begin to think about ways to create that margin with the Lord's help. We're going to help you over the next three weeks, give you some biblical encouragement in that direction, but I want you to start thinking about it for next week, okay? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for the opportunity to uh, gather around your word. Lord, all of us struggle with priorities. We all have difficulties with that. We've all sinned in that area. And Lord, we thank you for slaying the giant of our sin. That as we humbly confess those things, that we are forgiven. And, and now give us the strength to make changes where changes are needed. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we also pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.